Why would anybody watch a scum show like Videodrome? Why did you watch it, Max? Business reasons. Sure. What about the other reasons? Max Wren is a victim. I woke up with a headache. He has been exposed to Videodrome. I've been hallucinating for a while, ever since... What? Since I first saw Videodrome. Listening to the Bloody Beats Horror Show with your host, Eddie Diaz. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bloody Bits Horror Show. I am your host, Eddie, the Axe Jefferson, and joining me this week, we have a very special guest, somebody I've been waiting to have on the show for. Well, uh, until today, apparently, <laughs> we have Faustus. Hello, Faustus. Hi, Eddie. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you today? Oh, just fine. Just fine. So, Faustus, I first heard from you, of course, from the Grindbin podcast covering, uh, man, a number of, of interesting exploitation films, and you had a knowledge that, that I, I always want to call you Dr. Faustus, uh, <laughs> which... I know the honorific maybe isn't is not earned, but it is in my heart. So, uh, Faustus, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, I'm really happy to be here, and I'm really happy to be talking about what we've, we've selected today, this movie. A bit on that, the whole premise of the Bloody Bits Horror Show is I reach out to interesting people or friends who I would like to discuss the genre of horror, not even limited necessarily to film. It could be uh, books, it could be television shows, y you name it. I knew, uh, sir, that you were a man after my own heart when you came at me with three recommendations. The first of which being that you would like to cover Reanimator, which is such a such a brilliant film. The second is uh, doing sort of a, a retrospective on the classic uh, radio drama horrors. A again, uh, another one of the, the subjects that actually sort of got me into horror originally. But eventually we, we settled, or you settled, upon your third selection, mm -hmm. sir, and that is... Videodrome, the 1983 David Cronenberg movie. Written and directed. Yep, or partly written by, and directed. As we get into it, we, apparently he managed to cast it and finance it without having finished the screenplay first. <laughs> yeah, so a little bit of the backstory that I have here, and feel free to interject wherever you can. Mm -hmm. uh, the film was inspired by uh, David Cronenberg as a child used to tune in to channels that were being broadcast from Buffalo, New York after Canadian television went off of the air. It was a bit kind of like, I guess, nowadays the, the, the modern equivalent would be browsing unverified links on the dark web. He, he was a little afraid that he potentially could see something that was disturbing mm -hmm. or some sort of uh, pirate content that was not necessarily for public consumption. Right. This is, in fact, one of the things when I heard him you know, say this, that 
struck me as one of the most appealing things because I had similar experiences growing up, browsing through the ether, looking for things that were odd, often in radio, not in television, but some in TV as well. It appealed to me a lot because I first saw this movie, I think, when I was about 18 or 19. It was probably just at the beginning of the video revolution when people could go to video stores and rent video cassettes. But for years prior to this, you know, I had basically spent a lot of time listening to radio. And in fact, that was one of the few sources of horror that I was had ready access to because I had parents who I think thought of popular culture as you know something that would cause my brain to rot and fall out but they let me listen they let me stay up late and listen to the CBS radio mystery theater as I was growing up on WBBM coming out of Chicago you would listen to I would listen to that it was you know it was not bad content for the times and then you'd stay up late at night late at night and you'd listen to AM radio <laughs> and all kinds of strange things would be floating by depending on ionospheric conditions late at night you could get signals from hundreds or even thousands of miles away and so this experience, uh, and you know, they would sometimes be in foreign languages, they would sometimes be hard to unscramble or comprehend. And so this experience of saying maybe there's some kind of weird forbidden content out there that's really going to open up those neural floodgates, as Nicky Brand says in this movie, is, is going to get you going. The similar thing happened also when, when cable TV first came to my hometown, it was all analog, just like in, you know, Videodrome, all the, all the thing is analog as well. There's hardly a computer in sight, maybe one. So, you know, the softcore pornography, you could, you could sort of fiddle with the dials on the cable box in your TV and kind of momentarily unscramble it a little bit. <laughs> uh, and this was when I was probably about 14 or 15 years old. So it was a, a fine go over to your friend's house and mm. spend some time doing thing to do. There was always a sense that, you know, maybe, just maybe out there, if you, if you had enough signal power, you would find something that would really be uh, astonishing. And so when I saw this for the first time a little later in adolescence it's like that that's the thing i was fantasizing about is that you'd pull something off the ether that mm. you couldn't see otherwise that was the immediate appeal of the movie for the, at the first level yeah there's something very appealing about the things that are transgressive right so in in my youth i was told uh, i didn't have necessarily the strictest parents i mean they i come from a family my father was military retired and and my mother uh, was kind of a stay-at-home mother. It, it was uh, the, the early 80s when we were full into the satanic panic. So the, the villains of the day were obviously like devil imagery, Dungeons and Dragons, heavy metal music, and horror movies. So uh, uh, what are some of my favorite things? Well, Dungeons and Dragons, heavy metal music, and horror movies. <laughs> right. The moment you tell me that I shouldn't go into this corner and I shouldn't take a look at it, of, of course, that's the first thing I'm going to do. And and man, it's so fascinating. You, you bring up the, the, the scrambling, effectively, of uh, analog signal. I had a old black and white television in my room and I remember attempting to, to tweak the knobs and, and twist the antenna to try to get channel four to just tune in for a moment, get a little, get a little uh, picture of, of the, uh, the skin flicks that were going on at, on Showtime at the time. Mm -hmm. This was like, this is over an early cable system. I think. Absolutely. Yes, this was, yep. this was over the early cable system. In fact, my father had purchased cable to scramblers that looked like uh, a long silver tubes that, that were coaxial male to female that you could use, the cable company used, to descramble like HBO or, or Showtime uh, back in the day, illegally, to, to, to effectively pirate uh, airwaves. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. So I, I, man, that's that's interesting. It's a very similar place to to come from on this, and and so thematic in in the movie. The trailer for this movie, interestingly, was was created mostly using a Commodore sixty four. It's funny because if you watch the trailer, while while it is a great trailer, I, I don't feel like it really captures the feeling of the movie. Mm-hmm. The the music that they use isn't necessarily appropriate. It, it paints a, a slightly different picture than than I think what Cronenberg was trying to communicate. It, you know, and what he is trying to communicate is really hard to figure out at some in in some ways, right? It's deeply dark. It's a deeply ambiguous you know, a deeply amb- ambiguous film. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there are sort of deeper levels that I sort of began to feel as I watched this movie. And I've watched it a number of times, probably about six or seven times, just trying to get ready for this particular podcast. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, because I went through, I went through, as, as you probably, you probably have this as well, there's a Criterion Collection version of available now. Yes. And this thing restores some things that were cut from the original theatrical release, probably from the original VHS release that I would have seen when I was much younger mm-hmm. it i guess like for one thing I, I looking at this it felt originally it also felt very liberating because cronenberg was just willing to put down on film things that just seem would have seemed a little bit unthinkable and were, i think were hard to conceive in the 1980s he's james woods who uh, stars in this movie as its protagonist max wren mm-hmm. says in commentary that you know Cronenberg's is a liberated vision. It's a vision liberated from corporate control. He has this, what he basically does in, in his view of Cronenberg's writing process is he has a dream, possibly quite literally a, a sleeping dream, and he writes it down, and then he tries to like create a narrative into which it will fit. Interesting. But but he doesn't worry a great deal about realism. I don't think he worries necessarily a great deal about social responsibility. <laughs> you know, I mean. That doesn't not to say that he's a bad person or no or, or anything like that. No, not at all. No, I think he just wants to realize his artistic vision. To the to me, that's kind of that was inspiring, because it said you know if this guy isn't afraid to go down and write what he wants to write, why should you be afraid you know to write what you want to write? And so you know, as you know, some of your listeners are like, well, that was no, I'm sort of a writer of adult comics, uh, and some of them I try to go for a, a kind of a disturbing vision of of my own. Also, you know, I don't worry a great deal about whether I'm creating in some ways what many people would see as psychologically realistic characters. You know, and Nikki Brand is a difficult character to to sort of you know, to swallow as it were, because she isn't most ordinary people's idea of a realistic character, although yeah, there are some there are some extreme psychologies out in the world, as we will see. I think, and and we'll get to that. I think she is a representation of of uh, the the extremes of Freudian psychology. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's interesting that that you would bring up the 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 artist wanting to to create kind of what their vision is and create a challenging work, N- not not intentionally making it challenging, but but it it certainly is. It's funny because uh, Andy Warhol actually compared this movie to uh, A Clockwork Orange. He said it was the Clockwork Orange of the 1980s, which rings very true, right? In in the imagery that you're being shown in A Clockwork Orange and sort of the the framing of it and the themes of it, very bombastic, almost uplifting soundtrack with an ultra-violent setting. Not not necessarily in this, it's sort of played a little bit differently, the I think the soundtrack should definitely be brought up. There's a very uh, orchestral, gothic, almost synthy, which would have been contemporary, but almost feels antiquated in, in its uh, uh, 
kind of like pipe organy gothic feel. I mean, how the, the the score here is composed by a close friend of Cronenberg's named Howard Shore. Mm-hmm. I actually think this is he is a brilliant film composer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, he reminds me of yeah. Now the name just dropped off of my head. Um, Bernard Herrmann. Mm. Uh, he he feels like a successor to him because he uses often like fairly minimalist effects to achieve what he what he wants to do in terms of making the movie make sense. I'll have a comment actually, and a little more when we start breaking the movie down. On, on the very first notes of the score that we hear that go over, like I guess, the Universal logo. He, but, you know, he, it, I think the score is very effective, just almost because of its, of its comparative minimalism and its, its gothic sound and its reliance, as we'll see, on certain musical tropes, harmonic tropes taken from, from classical music. We'll get into that. Uh, can I make another sort of another theoretical kind of observation as well, mm-hmm. which is, you know, there's sort of layer after layer. Like there's the layer of this is adolescent. This is the realization on film of of an adolescent fantasy. Absolutely. This is a liberation from social conventions you've been taught all your life about what you're allowed to do in literature. And then there's a sort of a third level that struck me is that this is often a movie about and the listeners will have to forgive me for the use of this this term, but what I would call ontological violations. Now, the idea of the ontological violation is sort of you're mixing okay. modes of being in a way that becomes very disturbing, counterintuitive, and unnatural. That's, that's, it's uncanny. That's highly abstract, but let me give you a more concrete example. In our normal, everyday, commonsensical, sane view of the world, there are living things, and then there are not living things, right? And some category of a subcategory of not living things are things that used to be alive but are now dead. Yes. But there's in legend and fiction we have a lot of things that cross that line between the living and the dead in a way that we find very disturbing. The vampire being a classic example, right? These are things that have certain aspects of being alive. They have animation. They move autonomously. Mm-hmm. They appear to have sort of cognitive life. They plan, they talk, they speak, but they're not like living things, all right? They don't participate in normal biological processes of being alive. They rely instead, in the case of vampires, for example, on a bizarre kind of parasitism that upon those things that are living in order to sustain themselves. And this is this paradox, this something of which ordinary good cells tells us cannot be, generates a sort of arousal that combined with the fear of the fact that these things are preying on us generates horror. Frankenstein's monster is another example of an ontological violation as well. Uh, It's something that shows signs of being alive, but it's been cobbled together out of dead Parts. This is frightening, and it's also it's a paradox of the creature itself. I remember the famous line in um, *Bride of Frankenstein*, a movie I think which was superior to the movie for which it's a sequel, where the the creature says, "We belong dead," but unfortunately, it couldn't belong dead. It's in a paradoxical state between being a, lo- a living thing and a dead thing. You know, there are all sorts of other kinds of paradoxical violations of this line between living and non-living with, as you said, things that are uncanny and examples of things that are frequently uncanny are dolls Mm -hmm. or puppets or statues because these are objects that look like us, but they aren't us and they aren't alive and they shouldn't be alive. But the resemblance is kind of close and it can make us kind of uncomfortable if you look at them in the wrong light. And what if that doll does come alive, right? Well, unsurprisingly, there's a lot of horror around dolls that come alive. You know, in in film, you think of like, 
you know, Chucky or Annabelle or creatures like that. Those are those are ontological violations. They they're moving around on their own. They shouldn't do that. Sometimes, sometimes in, in classical, in more classical sources, you have things like statues that come alive. All right, you think of the Commendatore in Don Giovanni that you know invite gets invited to dinner and shows up to become an agent of supernatural retribution. If though, if you're interested in this, you, though, have you read Thomas Ligotti's uh, The Conspiracy Against the Human Race? I have, I have not. I've, I, it's on my list though. I, I make this a strong. I, this is a strong recommend. I think for anyone who likes horror and who likes this podcast, okay. because he writes with a great deal of eloquence about the sense of horror that attaches to the self-willed puppet. In, in fact, for him, it's a it's an even deeper level of paradox because in Legati's view, all of us are just self-willed puppets that don't recognize our own nature. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Now, another kind of ontological violation, and here I think we're closer to Cronenberg's obsessions in themselves, uh, is that between the biological and the technological, right? Yes. We, we yes. intuitively divide the worlds, in, again, into living and non-living things. The living things are like these pulsating, breathing, curvy, imperfectly shaped, jiggly things. You know, they're kind of warm and they have things flowing through them and so forth. They're inviting. Right. They're, they're comfortable. All these things. Yeah. Then there are things that are technology, that there are machines. These things are angular and they're hard and they're inhumanly symmetrical. Mm -hmm. And these, you know, and, and, you know, they don't, they're not that complex in terms of how they're put together compared to the biological. Yes. And things that cross between these two lines, again, they generate this kind of result. There's something that we see illustrated a lot of times in video drums and pretty much everything else that I think Cronenberg commits to film. Mm -hmm. And these things, you know, they, there's usually a sense of horror. Although it's interesting because it's not entirely clear to me that Cronenberg always feels that way. I've often heard him say in commentary that he sees this technological nature of the human species often as a kind of liberation. And for characters, some characters in Cronenberg actually embrace their degeneration or their transformations as liberating. Well, yeah, because as, as uh, Cronenberg has a bit of a background in biology, mm -hmm. from that perspective, the cancer, let's say, the tumor, the growth, the thing that does not belong, even though it is organic. Think, think like a movie like The Brood, right? Yes, yes, exactly. He sees their point of view very much in that it is expanding and it is just maybe doing a thing that is new or unexpected in its host or in, in the human. While that might not be preferable to to its host, from its perspective in a very cold and very clinical way, he describes that. And he maybe not necessarily empathizes with it, but he tries to tell its story. Yeah, he does. And he, you know, he does it in a... He's, he's surprisingly sympathetic to the monster Cronenberg is, and I think that I think actually probably some of the best direct some of the best creators of these have a sense of you know knowing what what's inside the you know, the monster's mind or its sense of protagonism. May I suggest there's one other category of on, of ontological violation that's really central to this work, which is that between the real and the imaginary. Mm -hmm. Ordinary common sense, we partition things into those that, the things that are in you know we use the expression real life, uh, you know like oh that might apply in college but doesn't apply in real life, where the real world is the world where things happen that matter things happen that have consequences you know you, you have to be careful in the real world because well you know if you screw up there then you know you're dead or you're hurt or you're broke or whatever everything follows natural order that's the real world and then there's the imaginary world there's the world of things that happen on the stage on film on the page of the book uh, uh you know in academia i don't know that's the world we don't mind so much we often like we look at these horrific things that might happen on the screen or on the page and we say, well, you know, at a moment when it maybe become 
too stressful for us to, to look at these things, we step back and say, well, it's only a movie or it's only a story. Can't hurt you. Can't hurt you for real. These are only fictional characters. They're not actually being hurt. Boy, does this one get blown up in this movie. Um, and as, as we're going to see, right? Right. Yeah, he really goes after it, all right? And so there's also this shock, but there's not just, just a horror. Again, like, there's also the sense in which someone might look at this thing and say, embrace it. I think that that's kind of Nikki Brand's trajectory in this movie. And I think for people also, here it gets a little squicky, and you might want to, like, put the kids to bed. But, you know, there's often people who will embrace this who are, have uh, an interest in sort of, like, transformation fantasies or transformation fetishes Yes. Uh, that appear in, in art uh, and, you know, you, you go to deviant art or whatever, you see a lot of people playing around with these things of people that turn into statues or people who, you know, melt or whatever, the, the things like that they're not supposed to do. Mm -hmm. But here what they're doing is I think they take the kind of um, the stimulus or the, the arousal that goes along with the fact that we're seeing reality fall apart in front of our eyes in some way mm -hmm. and marrying it not to fear but to lust or, you know, to sexuality mm. uh, and you get a big charge out of that. And, you know, maybe there's a little that going on here too, I think. You know, people people will... A hundred percent there is. Yep. Uh, so, Faustus, ju just as a note, um, all of my podcasts are marked as explicit, so, so feel free to to run with it you you're not going to offend my delicate sensibilities and as far as my listeners go you're you're in for a penny you're in for a pound sir you uh <laughs> well the, the thing about sending the kids to bed was kind of meant as a joke yes uh, <laughs> well, i don't know but you know different families different lives who know what they well they, they certainly shouldn't be watching videodrome that's for yep. sure yeah <laughs> we, we would hate to corrupt the youth of america that's right. So it's interesting, this, with Nikki's character and, and the kind of the sense of inevitability, like it's almost as though she is rushing toward her fate. I don't know if you're familiar necessarily with the graphic novelist Junji Ito. Yes, I've seen some of that work. It's not deeply familiar to me. Okay. But the name the name is familiar. And some, I have a, I, I think I know where you're going with it. The Enigma of Amagara Fault? Mm, not directly, no. Okay, so the enigma of Amagara Fault is that there is a earthquake that happens in Japan. And once it happens, there is a, uh, a shelf of a mountain that is exposed that has uh, silhouettes or, or character, caricatures of, of human beings there. And they're filming it. They're saying, well, where did this, where did this come from? Why are there these uh, outlines of human beings that are holes in a in a in a uh, stone mountain wall mm -hmm. eventually one person says that's that's my hole mm -hmm. that's me they go into it and they uh they slowly start sliding because it's it's at a downward slope and they slowly start sliding into it and uh, i don't want to spoil the ending for anybody who hasn't read it but it is mm -hmm. very much about a bodily transformation and accepting the horror of accepting the the in inevitability of who you are sure and what you are in your fate and i think nikki's journey in this i mean it's it's almost very much mirrors that it has an almost stoic feel to it right because she knows what she is and she just she sort of just goes with it and that is unsettling. Mm -hmm. We'll, you know, this may, to those who haven't seen the movie, it'll become clear as I guess as we break it down what exactly yeah, happened. Yeah. So the the last introductory note that I have is Great Civic TV, which is the station that is run by uh, Max, is patterned after uh, Civic Television. City TV. Or, right? Sorry, City 
television. City TV, yeah, an actual television station that started out of Toronto and is uh, infamous for showing softcore sex films as part of their late night yes. programming schedule. So, so well, we start with Alexa waking me up in the morning. Uh, with well, can we actually? I want to step. <laughs> I want to step back. Oh, I yes. Step back Sorry. a little further. All right. To the very, very beginning. Yes, Universal logo. We open with the Universal logo. Instead of like the sort of normal Hollywood fanfare that you might expect to see with the Universal logo, uh, what you hear instead is a very ominous synthesized sound. It goes, dee, dee, dum, dum. All right, that, do you recognize that interval? Vaguely. It's a tritone, okay? Uh, it's basically going It's going from, like, I think... I don't have perfect pitch, so I'm kind of guessing, but it looks like it sounds like B natural to F natural, mm. and it alternates between the two these two notes. This is an interval that, as far back as the Middle Ages, was identified by music theorists as the Diabolus in Musica. Uh, <laughs> yes. Because, because it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's unsettling, it's harmonically unstable. It doesn't appear in a normal scale, mm-hmm. right? You you, you normally expect that 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 seventh degree to be um to be down a layer. It's used in classical music, especially or actually really in romantic music. It begins to be used fairly freely to suggest something very you know, very unsettling afoot. So, for example, Franz Liszt uses this interval mm-hmm. to suggest hell in his Dante Sonata, and Wagner uses it uh, in the form of a timpani tuned in C and F sharp mm. to create a brooding atmosphere in the prelude to Act Two of his opera Siegfried. It's a very simple musical idea, and yet it sets the it sets the stage for what's about to happen in a decide. Even if you don't even if you don't like know the idea of a tritone or you know, that idea of harmonic civility, it is still unsettling. Yeah, it's... Because people have heard a lot of this music and they know something is up. It's used very commonly in heavy metal music, again, speaking of the transgressive. And in fact, the tritones, the use of the tritones in music was uh, frowned upon. Right. For for a, a period of time. Well, you don't want to bring the devil up. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's, this is just, it's so simple. It's so brilliant, uh, especially because he uses this kind of quasi-synthesized sound that, that, you know, it's such a very simple idea, and yet here we are already. We're going to be a little uneasy about what we see next, right? Oh, yeah, and it's fascinating, too, to think about, like, prior to this, Cronenberg's works were, were kind of smaller films uh, up in Canada. This, this is his first universal picture, if I'm not mistaken. So I, I, I can't imagine that the, 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 the tape that ended up on the executive at Universal's desk, mm-hmm. and they said, okay, well, let's see what he's produced for us. And they watched it, and <laughs> And, uh, yes. Ugh. Oh my God! What is this? <laughs> it's kind of challenging. Oh, and I love it. As I said, we begin with the Civic TV intro, and it's one of the classic uh, early 80s splash screens that you would have on your, your television. And this is a uh, this is a personalized message to Max that is recorded by uh, one of his one of his assistants. Kind of breaking down. His, his loyal his loyal girl Friday, Bridie, uh, whose yes. name is Bridie. She's played by Julie Connor, and she's speaking to Max, who's played by James Woods. Yes, and telling him kind of what his day is. And it, it's so funny because I'm sure at the time that this happened, like this was such a, this was probably fantastical, right? To have your television wake you up and tell you about your day. And yet now here we are. Here we are. Here we are adapting that, uh, uh, or adopting 
that technology into our, our day-to-day lives on our smart watches, our smartphones, and our uh, smart speakers. I, I really like the fact that around the um, the wake-up call from Bridie, they have the Civic TV logo, mm-hmm. or like, you know, like little insert, Civic TV, the one you take to bed with you. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> kind of a double entendre with that a little bit. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, we meet Max, as you said, played by James Wood. Max runs Civic TV, which is a UHF station uh, out out of Toronto. He is reviewing some, um, well, well, some some photography, mm-hmm. let's say. That's <laughs> uh, a, a bit salacious because he is about to go and uh, maybe attempt a purchase of some content for his network from a uh, Japanese salesman. Right. Mm. He gets it. You'll have to excuse me. I'm drinking a beer right oh, okay. now. And, and it's, yeah. I'm, dr- <laughs> I, I'm three Sorry. hours later in uh, time zones from you, so I'm drinking coffee right now. Mm, okay. But uh, Max has some coffee, too. He makes what looks like some cappuccino, mm-hmm. has some cold pizza. Yeah. He's, he's got a really wholesome lifestyle, Max, I guess. He heads out at six in the morning to go to this terrible hotel Ugh. where there's like people fighting in the hallways. And he meets a Japanese salesman played by harvey chow who opens the door and lets him in he says you know max says well do you have cassettes and he said sure his business partner who's played by david tsubuchi a man who would later become the ontario minister for culture yeah uh, <laughs> yeah that's challenging <laughs> hands he says i want to see the last one because he's basically trying to figure out whether this is salacious material enough for him to have on his cable channel and so he puts and he see we see uh we see a, a short excerpt from a supposed softcore japanese porn film called samurai dream where a sleeping woman wakes up she pulls off the head off a little doll which turns out to be a costume on top of a dildo mm-hmm. this was apparently cut from the theatrical release because because the censors didn't like dildos or something. We watch her outside through the fog, through a paper screen. Yes. Uh, we see her nude from the waist up, presumably using the dildo. We had, we cut, and we now are inside a conference room at Channel 83. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where, where Max is uh, speaking with the other members of the board about how, while, while this might be good, this, is, this isn't going to get them anywhere. He needs something... Harder. Yep. Needs something a little more. So his partners are kind of bored, is looking kind of bored as well. Yeah. Uh, it, it looks like one of those business meetings that you know you just don't want to be at that much. You know, his partner named Raphael says, eh, "Too much class. Bad for sex. It doesn't turn me on." Yeah. Max is too soft. Anecdotally, I, I used to uh, speak with a person on the internet, and and his job was to review pornography that was being submitted to one of those tube sites. Not necessarily for quality, but to to put the tags on it for what the content was. Mm-hmm. And he had done this for for years, and he said the the turnover rate on that job is insane just because eventually and and speaking kind of to your point about the 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 clash of the organic and the mechanical or the the real and the surreal that we were talking about eventually it just becomes meat slapping together it's no longer titillating to to them and it, and it, it can be a, a little bit troubling so i wonder if that might be you know oh, we've seen this before we've seen the the pornography we've seen these boring things what's next and and that's max's real motivation here right is what's the next thing right we're looking for something that will i think his line is we're looking for something that will break through you know something mm-hmm 
Huh. And so Max goes to seek that out by, uh, well, moving into the less legal portion of their operation uh, with the assistance of his friend. And, and I think probably a minor role, but maybe one of the better acted roles in this movie. And that would be his assistant, Harlan. Yes, Harlan, played by a Canadian actor, Peter Dvorsky. And he is so good. Who, who so, he looks the part so much. Oh my God, he does. No, no one is, no one has looked more like, no one has ever looked more like a video pirate than this guy. That's, I'm gonna. Nope. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die on that hill. Cause he's there, he's kind of unshaven, he's got big nerd glasses and his vest full of, you know, it's just great. Yeah. And he sees he gives the sense of being utterly committed to his job as well. What has he found? Well, he has found that there is a uh, signal coming out of Malaysia. And he, well, he projects the signal for Max. And it appears, by, by all regards, to be a woman who is being beaten against a red, uh, very clay-looking wall. Mm-hmm. And so, again, we've got this Freudian red imagery going on right now which is meant to to be uh, uh titillating and lustful and, and maybe even uh, evocative of anger and rage mm-hmm. and max is watching this and and man max he's uh he's digging it yes it's right up his alley he's only got 53 seconds of it though we're gonna need more we're gonna need to trace that that uh that feed down i gotta say by the way in terms of set design this this underground this laboratory which is literally in the basement of Channel 83. It looks great mm-hmm. for a pirate lair, an electronic pirate lair. All old-fashioned analog TV equipment. It really does. Uh, I bet some of it still runs vacuum tubes. So that that since I actually had one of my first real jobs was working in radio in the era before we had a lot of digital stuff. Uh, that was that was nostalgic for me because we you know I. I loved that job, and <laughs> yeah. this reminds me a lot of it. Not 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 the uh, torture chamber stuff, but uh, the but the equipment certainly. No, no, <laughs> no. That was later when you started doing office work. Everything re- that's right re- resembled the torture chamber. You know what's funny is um, because of the nature of my actual work, I can't talk about a lot of it. But I used to actually work for NASA. NASA has a lot of archival uh, uh, footage that they need to sort of transfer from analog to digital. Mm -hmm. Uh, And where we were located was very near Hollywood. So I, I was working with them specifically with the archives department and i would go in and see just a a a swath a history of of the technology that was used to capture video and audio, of course, and speak to the people who were doing their best to transfer it over to digital. So it's, this scene so strikes a chord to me because you think of NASA, you think of the high tech, but then you walk just down this corridor and you walk into this room and you see this very antiquated, very real to real. I mean, it almost looks like something that would be in an Ed Wood movie <laughs> uh, of technology. There's just lights that are blinking for what what appears to be no reason. But the man who runs it, the, the person who operates it, uh, our Harlan here, he, he's mm. dedicated and he knows his craft. Most definitely. And he's you know he's definitely going to try to get some more footage. Yep. But Max has on to do, has another adventure in, in play because we're on a sound stage. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we're on a sound stage and we are defending 
freedom of speech and expression. Right. To, to add to add a little more detail, he's he's on a talk show. Yeah. And the other the talk show is basically run by someone named Rena King. Mm-hmm. Actor, actress is Lely Cadeau. His other guests are Nikki Brand a Toronto radio personality and she who's played by Deborah Harry brilliant role by Deborah Harry amazing and she had like had very little acting experience prior to, to yeah. this so she just came on and did it and then there's a mysterious figure named Professor Brian Oblivion yes who appears only on television yeah but on television uh, so there's a yeah, there's a television <laughs> set set up on the stage where you know, he's sort of sitting there you know, looking out, and he's played by a Canadian actor, Jack Creeley. Oh, and he is so wonderful, yep. by the way. Jack Creeley, he borders brilliance and insanity when you hear him speak in this movie, and and I love it. God, there's something so also, like, I'm sure this was so great if you could have seen it in the cinema, but there's something so, so charming about like I, I recall when i was younger when, when i saw this on vhs putting it into the to the vcr watching it and and he, seeing a guy saying hey i only talk on on tv when when i'm on video and i myself am now watching it on video so we're we're very much playing with the idea of being in a box in a box in a box mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so brilliant I, oh god i love this scene yeah. so i mean you know Rena King asks the sort of standard media question. Your, tel- your, your television channel shows everything from softcore pornography to hardcore violence. Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah, is killing children entertainment or is entertainment killing children? Right. And you know, Max gives what you would think of as a sort of standard answer. Well, you know, we're kind of small. It's a matter of economics. Yeah, we have to compete with the big guys. So this is what we have to do. Be, be a little bit more uh, uh, subversive. And so, you know, the, you know, it goes on. But don't you think these contribute to a climate of social violence and sexual malaise? Don't you care? At this point, I guess Nikki Brand comes in. She says, well, I think we're all very overstimulated. And <laughs> we always want more. And, and <laughs> At this we're, point, we're... <laughs> sorry. Yep. I, I, I yep. I, 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 I'm sorry to laugh, but it just feels like poor Rita King. She's watching her talk show go right off the rails at this point, because well, why did you wear his Max's retort is well, why did you wear that dress? And the idea is that Nikki King is actually a therapist. She's a radio therapist, so he he appeals to her. He says specifically, you're wearing a red dress. Right. That's very uh, evocative. You should know a thing or two about Freudian psychology, mm-hmm. which associates red with well, you know. So, yeah, obviously, yeah. <laughs> Rena King tries to get the interview back on the rails. Says Nikki Brand is is Max Ren a menace to society? <laughs> you remember what her response is? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if he's a menace to society, but he is a menace to me. He's definitely a menace to me. Oh, uh, but maybe she likes that. Yes, maybe she enjoys being menaced. So at this point, I think Max like asks her out to dinner on the set. He literally asks her on a date. He's ignoring <laughs> the host of the show. <laughs> <laughs> that they're that they're on, and he says, "Hey, do you want to go out and get dinner after this?" <laughs> I'd like to ask you to dinner. It's, so, so Rena oh, King turns to the TV set and says, "Professor Oblivion, be essentially get me out of this." Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Can we now that we've now that we've entered into the realm of reality television, where yep. the topic at hand does not matter? We're we're just going for the sex and the drugs and the violence. Uh, the proper man, the professor. What do you have to say about this this topic? And he goes. He starts sort of a Marshall McLuhan esque mm-hmm. lecture about you know, how in the future we will all be on television. And I can't even remember it because it was, it was sort of a, 
it's sort of oddly vague. Uh, there's a fun fact I found about Jack Creeley, by the way, which is, although I haven't been able to check this direct, I haven't had the time to check it. Okay. He apparently is in the war room in Dr. Strangelove. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> which is perfect. Uh, and the, the Marshall McLuhan fact is he actually used to lecture uh, at the university that Cronenberg went to, although Cronenberg was not there while he was lecturing. Mm -hmm. um, so, so definitely an influence. Uh, and, and in fact, the, this, this character, um, Professor Oblivion, was inspired by him, clearly, right? Uh, and I think in the speech, he, he speaks that the, the, the screen of the television is the, the retina of the mind's eye and that the images that we experience are, mm -hmm. are a raw experience. Uh, and that is why he only appears on television, on television. <laughs> on television. Which is funny. It, it's, yeah. I, I, I don't know. The, his character is somewhere between cult leader and uh, Cassandra complex, right? Like, I know what's about to happen and nobody will believe me. So, and maybe his own madness, what we'll get into, mm. stops him from actually helping people yep so max returns to work and more video drum yeah harlan has uh harlan is actually kind of locked in on it and and he says uh well it's it's interesting because all it is is hours of senseless violence it, it, there's no political there's no thematic reason for it there's nothing it's literally senseless violence there's no plot and he's tracked down that that uh the malaysian source was actually just a relay as any good pirate would do it's similar to using a vpn for those of you who understand technology a little bit and it's actually coming from pittsburgh as it would yeah yes. <laughs> all the bad things come from pittsburgh i suppose yep. Yep. <laughs> so he, he uh gets a he grabs a tape of it a tape full of videodrome he Takes the tape home for his first date with Nikki, I, I guess. Yep. Or s something. I mean, at least he takes it home. Yeah. Hey, tra Travis Bickle, eat your heart out, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> because uh, he takes he takes it home to, to watch, and, and Nikki's into it. Yeah. I mean, he we get the date, or we get part of it, right? He goes to CRAM, C-R-A-M, which is the radio station where Nikki Brand works. Mm -hmm. Cram. Yeah, Cram. Um, <laughs> you know, she's on the air. She's dealing with some distraught caller. You know, <laughs> I love the fact that she her show is called The Emotional Rescue Show. So they go, they presumably... Max Wren and Nikki Brand go out on a date, and it's back at his apartment. Uh, and she says, hey, you got any porno? Mm -hmm. What's this thing called Videodrome? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the, the, another one of these bizarre, or one of these amazing exchanges, you know, Max says, well, it's torture and murder. It isn't exactly sex. Says who? Is Nikki's reply. Yeah, and we kind of, we're starting to get a little look into her eyes. Maybe she, much like Max, who has uh, been exposed to so much of this softcore pornography is is dro grows dreary of it her as a radio therapist has grown kind of tired of the normal psychology mm -hmm. i mean pe dealing with people's commonplace relationship issues or sexual hang-ups is is boring yep yeah. so she puts it on it's the it's the pirate signal there's a woman who's been basically hung up in this this orange red torture chamber she's been hung up and whipped Mm -hmm. uh, and immediately Max says, oh, I'll turn it off. And Nikki's response says, no, I can take it. Yeah. Not only that, but she says, can you make it more clear? Mm -hmm. Which is funny because, as you said, with the trying to dial the knobs in and, and tune in to that, that station, we're, we're kind of hearkening to that a little bit. He says, I, I can't, unfortunately. This is uh, the pirates scramble it. That's what they do. Uh, they, they try to make it a little more, mm -hmm. a little more difficult. Wow. So she is into it. 
she says, hey, you know, you want to you wanna try a little bit of something like this? Maybe you could give me a little cut mm. on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. And she, she uh, pulls her, her shirt over a little bit, and he sees that there's already a few cuts and says, I think uh, somebody might have beaten me to it. Yep. Also, and this is a, a very ominous line, I wonder how you get to be a contestant on this show. Yeah. Yes. Contestant. Right. As though there's a prize to be won. And then, you know, Max is, a, is typically flippant, saying, I don't know, nobody ever seems to come back next week. So now we, uh, they're fully just engaging in a, uh, a sadomasochistic relationship. Um, we see some scenes with them uh, snuggled up to each other in bed as Max is uh, piercing her ears for her with a, a bit of cork to back it so that the, you know, the needle goes through properly and straight and pulls it out and sucks the blood mm-hmm. uh, off. Yep. And in the meantime, the Videodrome program is still playing in the background. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, once they, they actually start engaging in, in sex, you notice that whether it's a hallucination or, or whether it's through the mind's eye, they're on the floor of the set right. of Videodrome. Right. Uh, and you, you can hear a sound of heavy breathing in the background. And it was, my impression watching that was as if, the, as if the, the room itself were breathing. Yeah, or as if we were hearing our own breathing because we are now the viewer, mm-hmm. right? We're watching Videodrome, <laughs> after all. Yes. Um, and so there's a, a kind of a uh, post-coital spooning scene uh, with them. Mm-hmm. And this actually, Faustus, is the scene that you had uh, commissioned. Yes. Uh, as, as part of promotion for your uh, your guest starring on, on this episode of the show. So... I have to say, having reviewed your your, uh, your work uh, in the graphic novel, let, let's call it, Sphere, this artist is quite talented. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you would like to plug them. Okay, yes. This is Lucy Fidelis. Uh, she's a Brazilian artist. She lives in Sao Paulo. You can, you can, you can find her work. Uh, probably there's lucyfidelis.com, which is a good place to get started. She is very talented, and she works very fast, too. Uh, as <laughs> I've been doing three podcasts within about a week and a half and had notice of them about two and a half weeks ago. And she managed to get out promotional art for all three in in a very short period of time. So, and she has done a lot of, she's done a lot of work for me. Definitely check her out. It's incredible work too. Like the, the, just the detail, the lighting. I mean, it's, uh, as somebody who, who is not an artist, I'm man, it, it, it's incredible. Definitely go out there and, and take a look. It's you know, Brilliant! It'll definitely be posted on on my site uh, when when this episode drops. So yeah, and very likely I will be using it as the album art for this episode. Cool. Uh, and and again, you know, when I post this, uh, I'll, I'll link to her uh, to her. Well, just to reach out to her so somebody else could potentially mm-hmm. commission her as well. Yes. So we have the uh, post-coital kind of uh, spooning then. We're back to work, of course. Well, because that, that's all you have is you have just, just back to work. temporary reprieve from your work and then right back to it. Max heads out to uh, meet with, I believe she's his... Mm-hmm. Uh, she's an agent who is out attempting to gather material for his show. Right. Or she's a. Prom- I think she's a. She's promoting work, mm-hmm. uh, whether mm-hmm. it's her own mm-hmm. or whether it's someone or she's doing it on, as on an agency basis. This right. character's name is Masha. Yes. She's played by Lynn Gorman, and she is a formidable character. Oh my god. She, she's a middle. Uh, she's a 
you know, probably in late middle age, mm-hmm. vaguely European, yes. probably probably somewhat Slavic by her accent, and she just carries herself with so much self assurance in the way that you know middle aged European women often do, right? Yeah, absolutely. She she clearly you know she clearly does not believe that her sexuality diminishes one bit no. with her age. In fact, possibly it only grows. And so she's promoting a softcore movie to Max. Yeah, again, softcore. So he's not really interested in it necessarily. It, it's got a lot of um, mm-hmm. almost uh, uh, ancient Greek theme. She calls it Apollo and Dionysus. Yes, Apollo and Dionysus. That's it, exactly. Yep. And and it's, uh, I don't know, it's a lot of naked people kind of gallivanting about and eating grapes. So mm-hmm. uh, Max is not interested in this whatsoever. He's sure interested in Videodrome, though. Oh, yes, he is. And in fact, uh, it's funny, he, he makes a little bit of a comment uh, uh, toward her sexually about, like, potentially... Uh, engaging with her and she says no you're, you're far too old for me <laughs> well this is that i think that's later though it's at lunch oh sorry yeah right now he's just right now it's all about money it's right. like you can have the agent's commission if you can find this for me yes and she's she's sort of all you know she's i think that masha has an interest in max but you know it's more business-like he says why don't you produce your own show and he says well i just don't have the temperament for it yeah but if you did man well he asks yeah, yeah, she asks him if he were to produce his own show, what... Would it be a videodrome? Yeah, which is a very telling line. It's, uh, is, are you, are you approaching this because you think it's sellable, or are you approaching this because you are, this is what your, your jam, this is what you're into, Yep. you know? Mm-hmm. So then we return back home, and it's late at night with Max and Nikki. And Nikki is uh, sitting back against the couch in her bra and talking to Max about how she's been she's being sent out on assignment, and of all places mm-hmm. to go on assignment, she has to go to Pittsburgh. And Max seems uh, disinterested. He, he's not really paying attention to what. She, yeah, just don't get a sunburn. She says, you know. And she says, well, isn't that where Videodrome is being filmed? Uh, perhaps I should go audition. And at this point, we're seeing that her id is rejecting the the super ego. Right? She's fully embracing kind of the the primal parts of of her her being and of her mind she she's had a little bit of this experience of videodrome she's maybe acted a little bit out with max and now she's in it to win it she's ready to go and max does not like this one bit he uh he tells her look the these are people that you should stay away from uh they're dangerous these mondo filmmakers and uh, in fact they uh they, they're a little bit more dangerous and they're a little into things that are more intense than even you could handle Handle. They play rough. More rough than even you, Nikki. Yeah. So what does Nikki do? She just asks him for a cigarette. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lights it up. Right. Takes a drag out of it, and... And then she burns herself with it, right on the top, on the left breast. Yep. Then she takes another puff. And it's a hard scene to watch, too, because you oh, get yeah. the impression she's actually doing it. Obviously, it's, it's one of Frick Baker's effects, but um, it is, you know, it, it feels real. And then she takes another puff. And she hands the cigarette right back to Max. And my note on this is when she hands the cigarette back to him, is it you need to accept that this is part of me or is it a challenge? Like, are you, Mm -hmm. could you burn me with this cigarette? Could you also provide for me this thing? Mm -hmm. Well, back to work. (laughs) Max is back to Masha and uh, 
She's got a little information on Videodrome. A splendid scene too, right? Because it takes place in a Greek restaurant. Yes. Um, and so it actually starts with a shot of a belly dancer mm-hmm. with you know finger symbols. Played, she's played by Francisca Headland. It seems so pure and so chaste compared to what we just saw. It yeah. really does, which is uh, so funny. Like we're playing with that so much in this. Yep. So Max and Masha are finishing up lunch. Max doesn't look so good. He's going to continue to look even worse throughout the movie at this from this point on. I think. Yeah, he it's so one thing that I would say with with Cronenberg's movies is he's been often criticized, but they're very cold and and, and, uh, clinical, specifically like scanners would be a good example of that. And and you could you could also criticize that the acting in scanners Mm -hmm. is uh, a bit wooden. It's a bit. Uh, harsh that that might lend from the the directing in this movie i don't get that same sense i get i I get a sense of warmth from the characters and it might be because of the casting Mm -hmm. right james woods while we've been watching this he's in no way like while he's the protagonist he's in no way somebody that that you want to be he's not a good person Mm -hmm. but but you're on the, the journey with him it's, it's so interesting yes. where where we're at with it. Is it. You know, do you have a hangover? Is what Masha asks him, and his response is, "I stayed up late last night watching TV." Bit of a hangover, I suppose. <laughs> yes. All right. So Masha has been working the subterranean grapevine, and she is disturbed. Mm-hmm. All right. It says, "Videodrome is something for you to leave alone. Definitely not for public consumption." No. And she then you know goes on to tell him, "Videodrome is dangerous," uh, and also. It's not fake. It's for real. All right. People are actually being killed on Videodrome. It's snuff TV. Yes. Right there. This is where one of the places where the, the line between the real and the entertainment breaks because, you know, it shouldn't be snuff TV. You know, it's not, it should just be a show, right? Right. And that's, of course, what Max believes. He says, why do that for real? You know, it's so much easier and safer to fake it. Mm-hmm. And then comes what I find is one of the really chilling lines in the, for this mid part of the movie. It has something you don't have, Max. It has a philosophy, and that's what makes it dangerous. Ooh, yes. Yes, exactly. When you believe that what you are doing is not for a profit, when it is something that you believe in, oof, that is scary. I mean, I'll make a note here that in the commentary track on this scene, Cronenberg himself makes the, makes the observation that people who have philosophies have probably killed a lot more people than the merely murderers. Yeah, absolutely. It takes a philosophy to justify everything. A murderer is usually a crime of passion. A serial killer has a philosophy. (laughs) Much, much scarier. Say what you like about National Socialism. At least it's an ethos. Um... (laughs) Nihilism. That's frightening. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. He says, look, can you give me a name? If you can give me a name, I'll buy your tripe. No, basically, I'll take a shower with you. Yeah, yeah, he says the, exactly. I'll take a shower with you. This is the scene I was <laughs> and attempting. This, this is a very, this is a very funny scene actually yeah. because he says, you know, and he says, "Well, Max, usually I prefer them a little younger than you." And at this moment, a, the waiter comes by, who's obviously a young man. He puts he puts the check on the table, and yes, Masha looks up at him and says, "Thank you." Very much. Yeah, she's, she says, uh, no doubt you'd be beautiful, but I prefer yes. them younger than you. And then, yeah, the the waiter, she kind of like gives him some eyes. and She's so... Yeah, you get the sense that she is very powerful. Yeah, she's so unapologetic and it's awesome. Yeah. But um, so 
He says, well, I'll make Apollo and Dionysus part of a package. Well, that hurts me, Max. Uh, it's a shit world, isn't it? He yeah. says, okay, so she eventually gives him a name. Go find Brian Oblivion. Brian Oblivion. The philosopher, the, the man, the doctor that we only saw on video on video on video earlier. Mm-hmm. So Max has to head down to Brian Oblivion's place, his joint, his... Yes. Place of operation, which is the cathode ray mission. Yep. The CRM. Yep. I suppose, <laughs> as opposed to the CRT. I love this setting so much. It's an old church where there are people that are, we're never directly told that they're homeless or, or anything. They're, they're just basically considered degenerate. Right. They look they look for the most part quite down and out. And what this reminded me of is something like maybe the Salvation Army or you know near Penn Station in New York, which I sometimes pass in the morning, there's a Franciscan Brothers mission mm. where people, you know, they have people in at seven AM and they feed them. And this is a little bit similar in that they have people come in and they give them something to eat and television. Everyone gets a television. Yeah, little cubicles divided where everyone has a television. It's, I mean, the line is out the door. It It is way, way, way overbooked for people. So much so that, in fact, one of the, uh, while they were shooting, one of the gaffers told the crew that the power line that was leading to the building that they were filming this in was smoking from just the uh, overconsumption of electricity that was going on from these televisions. As we're panning through it, we see that they're watching, you know, in, in some instances, pornography, which is fun in, in an old church, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I, I, I saw that mostly they were just watching just ordinary television, game shows and so mostly, on. Mostly, yeah. yeah, mostly. And it, it reminded me of, like you said, like the the, uh, the idea of the soup kitchen or the mission where, where we're helping the people that need a hand up, but but as well the um, the internet cafe or the library, mm-hmm. right? Because you can't to, to bring it into uh, current the parlance of our time. You you can't apply for a job if you don't have an email address, right? Mm-hmm. So while it seems bizarre that we're putting them into these cubicles with televisions, maybe it's about reintegrating them into society. Yes. And we'll have someone tell us that more or less explicitly within a few a minute or two of film time. Oh yeah, Bianca. Yes, he finds Max finds Bianca Oblivion, mm-hmm. daughter of Professor Oblivion. She's played by Sonia Smits, and she's a tall, angular beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, very, very carefully made up and very, very composed. Oh, in the setting, uh, by the way, upstairs where she is in, you'll notice there's not a screen to be found. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, but it is lavish. It is beautiful. And in many books, many pieces of fine artwork, it's stunning. This is one of the most stunning sets on this, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it looks out over the mission. She, you know, she basically says, oh, yes, I remember you. You said some very superficial things on that mm-hmm. talk show. But, you know, he says, there's a new twist in video that maybe your father wants to hear about. It's called Videodrome. Well, yeah, she asks, she says that, that potentially that my father will send you a tape uh, um, if he's interested in what you have to say. And she asks what format the tape should be in. And, and then that's when Max tells her, well, the format would be Videodrome. <laughs> little, little, giving her a little clue maybe that, that yeah. to let her father know what's going on. It's- but he just says, you know, the monologue is his preferred mode of discourse. Uh, Max can't really believe this. 
uh, and keeps pressing video drum before he walks out. Then we're back. We're back in Max's apartment. It's lit at night, as it almost always seems to be when he's in his apartment. Mm-hmm. He's got the, he has a moment of voiceovers rattling through his head, you know, Masha and uh, other people warning him about Videodrome. He goes into his kitchen, he unzips a package and pulls out a small automatic pistol. Mm-hmm. Walther PPK. Uh, which it seems, it seems pretty clear he doesn't know how to handle it because... He looks like he triggers the the magazine catch and the magazine drops right out. Yeah, it's not. He's he fumbles with it. it he's very awkward with the gun. It, it's mm. it's very alien to him. And uh, there's a knock at the door, and he hastily covers the gun up. Uh, he goes to the door, and who is it? It's Bridie. Yeah, his secretary. She's coming with a just tape. It, he's come there with his wake up cassette. And this, at this moment, we get to, we get the first sign of what I see as a growing paranoia in Max because he steps past Bridie out into the hall as he's letting her in, and you can tell very quickly he looks both ways out in the hall as if there's someone else. See if there's someone else there. Yeah. Then he comes in back in and closes the door. Now we have a very strange conversation. Bridie has been apparently tasked by Max to find out where Nikki had been. And she says, well, I went to CRAM. They said that Nikki wasn't on assignment. She simply had a month off, and she's gone right now. Mm-hmm. At some point, you know, Bridie reaches for the video, and Max freaks out. He slaps Bridie. Right. Well, Bridie attempts to put the video into yep. the VCR, yep. and he's not having any of that. He slaps her twice right. very hard. And if you notice, the second time he slaps her for about 12 frames, and it's not Bridie. Yes, it's Nikki. Uh-huh. And then, you know, he's, he, he, then he backs up. He can't believe what he's done, I think. After slapping over a third time, he apologizes to Bridie. I'm sorry I hit you. And she just says, you didn't hit me. What are you talking about? You know, are you okay, Max? Mm, yes. Max then begins sort of scratching his belly in a suggestive way. This is, uh, which will become important later on. And, you know, and Bridie is obviously very concerned, you know. You, know, you look terrible, Max. You know, can I get you something? Can I do something for you? Yeah, and, and poor Bridie. What what a great assistant. Like she's so kind. And he just he hustles her right out the door. But before he, if, if we have to have a moral, yeah, she's like, if we have a moral center of this movie, it's got to be Bridie. Where does one where does one find women like this? I mean, <laughs> yeah, she's certainly the, the character. I think I feel worst for. And you know, she gets hustled out of the apartment, but not before handing over another cassette that had been messengered over from the office of Brian Oblivion. Yeah, and this is the important one, right? She hands it over to him and she leaves. He he goes to put it into the VCR and this is the beginning, I think. Yes. So it is a Betamax tape. The use of practical effects in this movie, again, uh, I'll never get over practical effects. I cannot stand CGI in horror. It's it's an abomination. These practical effects are really amazing. Some of the best. And in fact, it's because... Who did the practical effects, sir? It's Rick, it's Rick Baker, right? Baker, the American werewolf in London. Yes, one of the best. Oh, and and now we're now we're going to have an ontological violation. Mm-hmm. Because... because what, is the, what does this cassette do? Well, it pulsates breathe a bit it it flexes expands and then contracts and now we're putting this into the to the vcr and we see brian 
Yep. And he explains, uh, Max, you're already seeing hallucinations. But what's really funny about, the, uh, one thing I thought was really funny is it starts as just like a McLuhan-esque lecture, right? Yes. The battle for North America will be fought in the video arena. <laughs> yeah. The videodrome. And so it goes, Max is sitting there and he's watching and he seems a little bit bored. Television is reality and reality is less than television. And what's and so, then, so funny is that, that this particular part of it that, that's actually fairly inconsequential is sampled so often in music and like punk rock specifically mm-hmm. of that era. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, then, but yeah, so he, he begins, as you're saying, with this uh, kind of trite utterances about, about yeah. you know, how, how is media influencing us, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And then... And then he explains that Max is uh, already seeing these hallucinations. He says... Well, he said the line says, Max, mm-hmm. I'm so glad you came to Yes. Me. That sure gets Max Wren's attention right. because how on earth could he have... Yeah, all right. Max is stunned. This is a pre-recorded video. Yep. And then he tells about the realities already half in hallucination. Mm-hmm. And you better watch out because eventually it could all be hallucination. I had a brain tumor. And I had visions. Mm-hmm. I believe the visions caused the tumor, and I could feel the visions become flesh. Uncontrollable flesh. Mm-hmm. And they took the tumor out. Yep. And it became Videodrome. Mm-hmm. The new flesh. And while this is going on, this black-robed figure walks in behind Brian Oblivion. Yes. She cinctures him to the chair he's sitting in. Mm-hmm. And then she wraps like a, a garrote or, you know, mm-hmm. or something around his neck and begins to, to strangle him. And the last words that Brian Oblivion are able to choke out is, I was Videodrome's first victim. Mm, so good. So Faustus, the relevance, the, the, the importance of this scene, what, what, where do you put it? Where do I put it? Uh, I guess I don't quite follow the question. Okay, so... We've got now Brian, who's explaining to Max that uh, uh, what what he believes Videodrome to be, right? Mm-hmm. That it's a, the bordering between hallucination and reality. Right. Does this scene, does is this actually occurring? Or us, the viewer, are we hallucinating alongside with Max? Well, what's going on here, do you think? Well, I think that probably, I mean... Obviously, it's very difficult to say because, you know, there could be any number of different interpretations. I think my interpretation of the movie is that Max is beginning to lose it right now. Okay. And in fact, has been has been doing so since before he put the cassette in because of the um, the slapping scene. Mm. That's clearly a, that's clearly an hallucination. Like you can't have, you know, it would be a, it would be a gross violation of rules of reality to have two women being standing in the same place within a few seconds of each other, the way they are in that scene. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Max, the way that these, these things that he watches on the screen become about him is that he can hallucinate them. Mm. And that is what I think is going on. Because what ha- And then what happens next is something that's obviously... I mean, it becomes a little clearer also. There, I don't want to give away parts of the, parts of the movie that we're only going to learn later. Obviously, when you watch this thing through multiple times, yeah. uh, you begin to also, you know, you begin to sort of get a sense of where reality might lie, if anywhere. Because what happens next on the screen is yeah. his executioner pulls off the hood oh, he's... and reveals herself to be Nikki Brand. 
and she's you get her extreme close-up right just seeing her lips and teeth mm-hmm. come to me max don't make me yeah wait. oh and that, uh, this scene yep was so beautiful and it's so well shot and also a brilliant practical effect as well very brilliant practical effect but also a very simple practical effect how they actually executed it Mm-hmm. is uh so mm-hmm. as you said it's we're hitting this connect of um sex and and sensuality mixed with technology mixed with fear and horror mm-hmm. at the same time as the television begins to come alive yes and throb and pulsate and there's these beautiful red lips that are slightly parted mm-hmm. and uh, they're telling him they're inviting him come in you know come over to me I'm trying to bring him in and the 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 screen of the television begins to bow out yep and reach for him as he he gets closer and closer he strokes the television that's becoming flesh right the, the it, television it's, itself it's moaning and sighing right yeah. It's, it's very, it's become, it's gone right off from the technology end and become very organic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see James Woods, you see Max's character lean into putting his face into this expanding, bulging screen. Uh, Woods in commentary commented, it looks like a giant breast actually. Yeah, um, a little. And uh, he's touching and fondling it. Which, which is the the effect is done uh, essentially by there's a screen inside of the television that that's made out of material uh, that that they then project the image of the lips onto, and, and from the back behind the television they press out from it. It's mm-hmm. such a simple effect, you know. It, it could have been done years ago. I mean, I mean, turn of the twentieth century effect. And and if they were doing it today, it would probably be some CGI bullshit that wouldn't look anywhere near as good. Nope, not at all. And and it might well it might look good, but your brain and and watching it, it's not something you could touch. It's not something you could feel. No, you wouldn't be persuaded by it, right? No, no, not at it all. It wouldn't. It would not have. A, it would not have the. De- would not have a feel to it. It might have a good look to it, but it would not have a feel mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. You could not imagine it in three dimensions. It, it just does not work. So he sticks his head into the television, and well, that's it. That's that. Next morning. <laughs> The next morning, Max returns to the mission. Yep, at least he's not going back to work just yet. No, no. He uh, goes back to the mission to meet back up with Bianca. And he tells her, look, this tape that you gave me, it uh, it made me, or your father sent me, it made me hallucinate. It bites. Bites, yes, there, it has teeth. Bianca says, well, but when did these hallucinations actually start? And Max says, well, and he thinks about it for a moment. He says, well, actually... It's when I first saw Videodrome. And that's when she tells him that the signal he picked up creates brain tumors. Max now realizing that that potentially his psyche is being damaged just by viewing this, which is the fear, right? That's that's what the moral panic, the satanic panic, or the video nasties, as they would call them in the UK, that watching a, a, something terrible on the screen could physically damage you. Mm-hmm. He uh, he says, "Hey, I need to, I need to go talk to Brian. Where is he?" Yep. And she says, "Well, he's through that door, but you might be 
I think he'll disappoint you. So Max goes in to see Brian. Faustus, what, what, is, what does he see? There's a huge room with steel shelving and thousands of videotapes in a variety of great variety yeah. of different formats. Yeah, much more organized, much more clean and clinical than his uh, uh, pirate radio station or video station. <laughs> yep, they're all there, and that's him. Yeah, he apparently Brian Oblivion had died eleven months before on an operating table, but he left thousands of tapes. And then we get a, we get a little bit of his doctrine. She says that he had helped to create Videodrome because he saw it as the next phase of evolution as man as a technological animal. Mm -hmm. He was convinced also that the public life on television was more real than the private life in the flesh. Yes, and he said that the, the Videodrome was creating a new outgrowth of the human brain, potentially to the tumor, but may, maybe he was potentially embracing the tumor as a, a next step of evolution. A new organ. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And it's funny because one of the next um, bits of fiction that I'm going to be ca covering in a few weeks is uh, the the series Black Mirror has an episode, San Junipero, mm -hmm. which the, the idea is that we take the summation of your consciousness and we upload it into the cloud mm -hmm. so that it exists there and, and it can continue on forever. So Faustus, I, I want to ask you, if that option were available to you, sir, that, that one could take your consciousness, everything that makes you you, and just upload it into the ether, into the cloud, into the internet, or into whatever whatever that becomes. Would you do it? Devil's in the details there, right? Because if you, you can, if they can keep your consciousness going forever, that means they can torment you forever. <laughs> so it's not as easy a call as one might think. Yeah, and that's what I love. Because the moment that I announced that I was going to cover that episode, everybody said, well, that's not horror. That's just a very well-made drama. But, like you said, the devil's in the details. The horror is what they can do with you forever. And what does forever mean, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that sense of forever might have been inspiring Brian. So he now, his reverberations exist on these tapes forever. And that's why it continued to change formats. Maybe he was trying to warn the world or, may, or maybe not. But you, you get a sense of there's almost a sick desperation in his message. Mm -hmm. Bianca leaves Max with a set of tapes. He goes back to Civic TV where he tracks down Harlan. And we get, we get another one of these rather quite funny exchanges inside all the, all the horror. He says, Harlan, have you been hallucinating lately? And Harlan's response is, no, should I be? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really adds a little snap and, to the movie that you get these funny exchanges. If um, this is your... your yeah. uh, you should. You should be hallucinating. We've been watching this mm -hmm. thing. You should be hallucinating too, right? Yep. <laughs> Why aren't you? Huh. So Max returns home and is watching Brian explain Videodrome. Yes. And there are some great quotes in this. How does it? I, I wrote down as much of the dialogue as I could grab. Okay. This is, I believe the tumor in my head is a new org, a new part of the drain. Massive doses of videodrome signal will change human reality, which is what I wrote down. And then I got, got distracted by what, what Max is doing because he's shirtless. So Max has been scratching his belly a little bit. And while we're trying to pay attention to somebody explain what's going on, we start walking into the world of body horror. 
Yes. In that this scratch that Max has going down his stomach begins to pulsate and throb and open up. And the the line between a wound and a vagina mm-hmm. uh, is very, very narrow here. Right. Um, and I think that's intentional. It's It's very vaginal, right? Sure. And it's weird because he's scratching at it with his gun, which is very phallic yes. imagery right? and very powerful. And poor gun safety as well. But <laughs> very, Yeah, that's not the place you want to store your gun. <laughs> yeah. Um, because he sticks the gun into the, the wound. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, a, a struggle with his hand to, to pull it back as he's wrenching it out of his own stomach. And when he eventually withdraws his hand, the gun is gone. And the wound has disappeared. And the wound has disappeared. Now, what's interesting is for this effect, they actually built a second couch that they built James Woods into Mm -hmm. so that he was sitting back a little bit further than what the camera would do. He had a prosthetic stomach uh, apparatus that was glued onto him. And uh, it was so painful, the removing of this, this, this prosthetic that was glued onto him. He swore that he would never glue another thing onto him again. But it's a bear, it's that was a hallucination, right? Yeah. So he's looking around his couch. Where's my gun? Yeah, that's again where you're talking about this um, subversion of uh, the normal, the real, and the surreal. The, the gun is gone, even though the wound is gone. Yep. There was no wound. Yep. The gun has vanished. Well, he's frantically checking his holster. He's pulling the cushions off the couch uh you know where is it well he doesn't find it Mm-mm. at least not then no because he takes a deep sip of whiskey yeah. and his phone rings and it's barry convex from the spectacular optical corporation from spec ops or at least his agent because the, the guy says barry convex would like to talk to you there's a car downstairs oh right, right right yes yes that's true so yeah, his agent says, "Yeah, Barry Convex has sent you a car. It's waiting for you downstairs." Mm-hmm. He goes downstairs and gets into the limo, which yeah, that, that's when we see that it's Barry Convex from Spec Ops uh, or Spectacular Optical Corporation. And I, I love this one. It's it's uh, a retail business that makes glasses, right, as a front for a weapons manufacturer. <laughs> <laughs> that's sure. also making Videodrome. We make inexpensive glasses for the third world and guidance systems for NATO. <laughs> oh, man. And so he explains, we're sorry, you weren't supposed to see the Videodrome signal. That was a mistake. Yeah, you picked up one of our test transmissions. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and it's funny because Barry, uh, th- this character was actually inspired by televangelist Jim Baker. Mm-hmm. Which you can see when you eventually meet him at the building. He's a very um, waxy, polished kind of... Oleogenous, you might say. Oh, exactly. That, you know, we did you know, get to see a little of Toronto at night. I know an anecdote here. It's a little bit off the course. But apparently when David Cronenberg first read Roberto Benigni, the uh, Italian comic, uh, he said at a, at a film festival in Toronto, Benigni explained that at first he was afraid to go out in the streets of Toronto... 
because he'd only ever seen them in Cronenberg movies. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But, but he was very relieved when he actually got there that Toronto turned out to be a perfectly nice place. Um, well, yeah, and that's part of the commentary here, right, is that Cronenberg is portraying the, the actual world is, is horrific, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, there's poverty, there's crime, and, and he's making the, the analogy that, that art reflects life, life mm-hmm. doesn't reflect art, right? Sure. Maybe. We'll, we'll see. He's, he's kind of playing it from both sides. So, so we, we show up at the glasses shop, and we meet Barry. Barry says, hey, uh, you weren't supposed to pick up those signals. Come into the back, though. We, we've, got a, uh, we've got a prototype to show you. This prototype is a helmet, which it's probably inspired Daft Punk. I, I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't put that on record. But, but potentially, it's, it's, again, one of these props that, God, I, I love it. it. It looks so brilliant it, it, it had an almost insectoid appearance yes yeah, but it's I, also a machine um, it's it's biomechanical and it glows and pulses also when it's turned on in a way that's sort of ominous james wood james woods wouldn't wear it i, I was well, exactly what i was gonna say <laughs> james would refuse to wear it because he, he didn't want it to burn him yep uh, or to get shocked so cronenberg actually wore it yep. in this scene so Barry tells Max, uh, hey, when, when you've got this thing on, you, you should think of uh, sadomasochism or violence, mm-hmm. right? Because what it will do is it will open up the receptors in your brain and your spine. Initially, when he turns it on, it's very bright mm-hmm. and it hurts him. So he says, oh, oh I'm sorry, I, I forgot to turn the lights off in this room. And he turns the lights off and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave because I, I hate to, to see this part. I'm, I'm not one for the violence. I can't deal with all that freaky stuff. Yeah, exactly. I've heard theories surrounding this movie that from this scene on, the rest of it is unreliable. And that is only because we never see Max remove the helmet, mm-hmm. which is a fascinating theory. And, and I might, on my next rewatch, I might have that in mind. What we see is, uh, we see... It's very pixelated. It looks uh, very, very rudimentary. Right. The the, uh, the the viewpoint, and then Nikki walks into the room, and it all gets sharp and clear, and comes into focus. We see a television, and Nikki's on the television. We look up, and well, we're in video drum. We're in the red room with the the clay weird wall. And now we're seeing Max from third-person perspective. And he has a whip that he uh, circles around the television and begins whipping this biological flesh television with Nikki on it. And she moans every time that he whips the, the television. It's only Nikki for a little while. Camera pans down. We see Nikki. James, sorry, um, Max is whipping the television. Mm-hmm. Camera pans up and we see him doing stroke after stroke with increasing ferocity. Then the camera pans back down, and we see it's no longer Nikki on the screen, but Masha, you know, hanging, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being whipped. I, would, I have to add in passing that James Woods in commentary said something very funny. He says, this is what acting is all about, totally committing to the idea of whipping a television set while standing in an orange torture chamber. 
<laughs> and you know, it's it's a funny thing to say, but it's kind of right. Like, if you don't have complete conviction, this movie will not come off. Yeah, uh, and he has complete conviction here. Yeah, it's funny because Cronenberg said in casting James Wood and working with him uh, on this film that he finally met his cinematic equal, mm-hmm. which. Wow. I mean, that's... That's a, that's a pretty high praise, right? Very high praise. If you're David Cronenberg. For yep. Cronenberg, yeah, forget about it. We then wake up in Max's house, and this, this has all been a, a, a dream, a terrible dream. And Max rolls over, and there's someone in bed with him. And for a moment, you think, well, of course... Um, Nikki's there with him, but he pulls the sheet back, and it's not Nikki, it's Masha, bound and, and presumably dead. So Max, he freaks out like you would, of course, stumbles out of his room, and he, he grabs the phone, and he calls Harlan immediately. He says, Harlan, you need, you need to come over here right now. So Harlan shows up. And he says, I want you to go into that bedroom and take pictures of what's on the bed. Whatever it is, I want, I want you to take pictures of it and bring it back out here right now. So Harlan goes in there, mm-hmm. looks around. And the way that they film it is very, very well done. It's to build the suspense because you don't get a read off of Harlan's face that there is or is not a problem immediately. Until Harlan walks in, looks over at Max and says, "There's uh, you want me to take pictures of sheets and, and some pillows? Because there's... Mm-hmm. There's nothing. So Max, he, he says, oh, man, there's, I'm losing my mind. Right. Let's go back to the lab and watch Videodrome. Because if what we recorded was Videodrome, then presumably the last thing that was broadcast on Videodrome was what we recorded. And at least I think that's the line of logic going on here. He, he kind of freaks out on Harlan. He's a little, a little rough on him. And Harlan's like, look, man, I'm here for the passion of the work. Absolutely. But you, you need to calm down. Like, you, you're having... Are you losing it? Are you okay? And uh, he says, look, I, I'm sorry. I'll explain why we're doing this when we get there. Mm-hmm. I know. I know it's, there's a lot of problems. Let's just go there. I'll meet you there in an hour. So Max goes back to the lab he talks to Harlan, and what did Harlan get? Did you see me on the tape, he asks. Harlan just says, there was no tape. There was no tape, there was no video transmission last night, and now comes the big reveal. There were never any video drum transmissions. Door opens up, and who walks in? Barry Convex. And now the floor has fallen out from under us. <laughs> because the last person that we had that we could rely on, right, Harlan, is gone well, except for maybe his uh, his assistant, but Harlan, his his partner in crime, mm-hmm. we now understand to be working with Barry. But why did you do this? Why? Wh- what's going on here? Well, they were experimenting on Max. They wanted to see if Videodrome could work on literally anybody, which explains why Harlan wasn't hallucinating because he never watched it. And it's fun if you go back and rewatch this, you'll see every scene where Max is watching Videodrome. Harlan is purposefully and intentionally looking away from the screen. Barry accuses Max of uh, being a sicko who enjoys watching this trash. And he says, well, the, the reason, the purpose of this, and Harlan actually has a very, very good monologue here. 
North America is getting soft, Patron, and the rest of the world is getting tough. Very, very tough. And we're going to need to be strong, and we're going to need to be pure. And it just goes on and on like this. You and the cesspool you call a television station, rotting us away from the inside. We intend to stop that rot. We're going to start with Channel 83 and use it for the first transmissions of Videodrome. So, Masha was right. They do have a philosophy. Yep, which is way more dangerous than a prophet. Yep. They are looking to take those dregs, the people that potentially were hanging out at the uh, at the mission. They're looking to exterminate mm-hmm. uh, the weak to strengthen the country. Yep. And they're doing so by transmitting this schlock. Or or just people they see as perverse, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like this is this is this is fascism here. It's not just the weak, it's also the, the people who have the wrong values. Well yeah, it's it's similar to like a, a Rorschach from Watchmen, right? It's like I have an ethos, I have a set of values, and if you don't fall within it, you're dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that's just or not, it's right. it's what it is. Uh, and they, yeah, they intend to begin broadcasting it from Channel Eighty Three. Right, it's perfect, right? They want to give these these people, these bad people, tumors and kill them. They did record his hallucinations, but they ask if he's ready for something new, a new tape. And this new tape, they pull out in in a similar fashion. Mm-hmm. To the previous breathing tape, but this one, this one is much less technological. It's much more organic, mm-hmm. and it pulsates and it throbs. And as it does, the wind whips up in the room and blows. And Max's stomach vagina opens up as Barry inserts the tape. This is allegorical for um, he's being programmed. Yes, the programming is a voice that he hears in his head. And that programming, that voice in his head is Barry telling him, kill your partners and give us Channel 83. In a very soothing sort of way, too. It's, 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 it's unnerving. Give us Channel 83, Max. Kill your partners. It's almost like, yeah, affirmation. It, it's uh, meditative, almost. This, this stuff with, the stuff with the slit, by the way, is more things that James Woods hated to do. Yeah. Um, he apparently said, you know, at one point, you know, while these, these scenes were being filmed, you know, I've ceased being an actor, and I'm only the bearer of the slit. Uh, and Debbie Harry apparently re- re- overheard this and said, "Now you know what it's like." Uh, uh, don't so don't mess with Debbie Harry. Oof, for real. Wow, what a great line. Yep. Oh man. So being the bearer of the slit that 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 uh, that carries a heavy burden. And so he reaches into it, and you think for a moment, I'm going to pull that tape out, what they programmed me with, and I'm going to toss it aside, and I'm going to regain my autonomy as a man, and fuck the man, but he doesn't pull that out. He pulls out the gun. Get ready for another great practical effect. Oh, man. One of the best. This is the, the, the merging of technology and human in the... The sense that these veins of of screw-like metal come out from the, the gun and begin drilling into his hand and up his wrists, making him the gun, right? making him the, the vessel, the, the weapon to be used. The handgun. The, the thing that he was so clumsy with that, that he dropped the magazine from is now a part of him. Mm-hmm. Oh, so it looks so so beautiful so now after this this scene where it's very very like 
reaching into him and drilling into him, uh, we go to him walking back to the station. And he looks disheveled, but pretty cool, pretty calm. And he walks upstairs over to his assistant and asks, uh, hey, where's Moses? His partners. He has his partners named Moses and Raphael. Um, and they're in, she indicates, well, they're in the boardroom. So off he goes. Off he goes to the boardroom. And they're having like a conversation about some gentle comedy, which is interesting. Yep. So again, the voice echoing, kill your partners, give us channel 83. He extracts his hand from his coat and kills them in, in cold blood. And it's fun because behind him you see the frosted glass windows and you can see that there are people outside panicking So because there's a gun going off, obviously. Somebody should react. But I, I just, in other movies this might not happen. In other movies, maybe he just kills them and walks out. But that, that doesn't happen. He, it causes bedlam and people freak out. So he does a, a pretty clever thing here. They open the door, his assistant, and he clutches at his stomach as he's walking out. And he says, oh, they, they killed them. He doesn't say anything. She says, you, you know, it's actually a confusing situation. Two men have been shot. Mm -hmm. Max is clutching his stomach as if maybe he has also been wounded. Yes. So it's not clear what's happened immediately. Bridie hustles him out of the, of, of the room and into sort of like a TV station break room, complete with a Canada Dry vending machine. And she hustles everyone out. Mm -hmm. Asks him, what can, you, what can I do? What happened, Max? What can I do for you? He just looks at her, and then he steps out the door, out of the station, and into the street, and vanishes from the station. Flees the scene. Acted like he did nothing at all. So now, the voice is back. Even though he's done their bidding, and the voice says, uh, you need to go kill Bianca. She's the last one. She knows about Brian. She knows about the work. Kill Bianca Oblivion. She knows too much. She can hurt us. Don't let her hurt us. Kill Bianca Oblivion. So he goes to break into the mission, and it's locked in the front. He wanders around there, finally finds an entrance around back. He walks in and says, hey, the, the, you know, sees Bianca, says, hey, don't worry, it's me, it's, it's Max, I'm, I'm, I'm from Channel 83. She says, oh, I know, no, I know who you are, and I guess it, it had to be you. They sent you to, to kill me. Because you're an assassin now. They program you and play you like a VCR. And they want you to, to destroy me. And at first he, he tries to play it off. He tries to act as though, no, no, I'm not going to do that. But then he pulls out the gun. Now it's changed a little bit. The body horror is a little amplified. And, and, and his hand and the gun have merged a little bit more. It's fleshy and it's massive, pulsating. And well, he, he gives chase to her. She, she tries to escape. And he rounds the corner, sees some paper curtain drawn. Behind that, you see the shadow of Bianca putting a tape in. He rips the, the curtain down. And what does he see? Well, it's more Videodrome. We see Nikki Brand being strangled, garroted almost on Videodrome. They killed her, Max. Bianca says, they killed her. Videodrome is death. She was already dead. They used her image to seduce you. Then the screen goes blank. And it begins stretching out toward him, and a matching handgun starts sticking out of the screen. The handgun shoots Max into his chest, and they do an interesting thing here where the screen looks like his chest with the bullet holes in it. We cut back to Bianca, and she says, well, the tape's been removed, and you are the video word made flesh. 
So now she says, use the weapons that they gave you to destroy it. Destroy Videodrome. Long live the new flesh. So now we see that Bianca Oblivion and the Oblivion family also have a philosophy. Mm-hmm. They, they may be this, this cultishness of the new flesh applies to them as well, but in the opposite direction, potentially, of the corporation and the military interests. So Max goes to, uh, back to the, uh, the eyeglasses shop, and outside on the TV we see the police report with the, the photo of him and a bum uh, is asking for money. Max is kind of disregarding him. And so we get just another clue of a little bit of like, well, yeah, there's a lot of bad things going on in Max's life. But again, maybe he's not a great person. He's, you know, ignoring a human being. And then we see Harlan. He walks into the glasses store. So Max sneaks into the back. Harlan finds him. and He says, hey, uh, where's, well, where's, where's uh, Convex at? Harlan's kind of standoffish a little bit. Says, uh, have they, are you here for me now? Is that... It's almost like Harlan doesn't necessarily trust Convex at this point a little bit. Mm-hmm. But there's a funny there's a funny exchange at the Fox where Harlan is actually sealing up a box. James Woods walks in and says, what's in the box? Yes. Uh, your head. <laughs> he says, the movie 7 hasn't come out yet. Come on. <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty great. So yeah, Har- there's, there's a moment where, you know, yeah, did, did Bianca, did, how about Bianca Oblivion? And she says, oh, she didn't give me any trouble. I guess this is the point where Harlan says, okay, are you ready for something, a new assignment? He pulls out a, another one of these pulsating beta cassettes. Mm-hmm. He says, open up to me. James was very coolly opens up his shirt. Mm-hmm. He's got the slit. And Harlan puts the cassette in, but something seems to go wrong. And he pulls his hand out. And what has happened is at the end of his arm, instead of his hand, there's a ticking potato masher grenade. You know, one of those old sort of like one of those old sort of grenades that were used by German forces in the First World War. Yes, uh, and it's, it's bloody and it's covered with flesh and so forth, uh, and it's ticking obviously. And Harlan retreats. He's like whimpering. He can't believe what's happened to him. He retreats to the back of the shop, and the grenade explodes. Apparently, and apparently, just sort of disintegrating Harlan entirely and knocking a into, uh, knocking a hole in the wall. Max does up his shirt. Uh, says, see you in Pittsburgh. Then walks through the hole in the back of the shop into a back alley. There's another comedic touch where there's like a mother with a little a little girl walking along the back alley. Says, mommy, look at the big kaboom. And she's running over to see what's happened. It has to be restrained. Yeah. And Max walks out very calmly, very coolly. Uh, it's pretty, pretty great scene. We go off to this trade show, uh, which is an interesting scene. They uh, they pan around and there's like cigar girls that are walking around with the new spring line of glasses yep. from the company. Yep. And there's there's a uh, a big production number going on on the stage. Yep. With dancers and singers. Mm-hmm. Max kind of stumbles into there. He finds himself a seat and sits down. He's uh, reviewing the program. Behind him on the stage, he hears Brian, and Brian announces the theme. Which is two phrases. Love come in or love comes in. Uh, Barry Barry, not Brian. Barry, yeah. Barry Convex. Barry Convex comes out in his, his typical oily way. Uh, and he's you know, he's promoting his new Medici line of uh, eyewear. Uh, and he refers to the two phrases from Lorenzo il Magnifico. Love comes in the eye at the eye, and the eye is the window of the soul, right? Mm-hmm. So Max, he walks up onto the stage and he produces his flesh gun. And chases him around the stage a little bit. And it's great because uh, Barry's got the lavalier mic 
on him. He's chased around the stage and you can hear him in panic and dread and it's kind of echoing around the, the Colosseum as Max aims at him and shoots the shoots the hell out of him. And and a great thing about this is that the, the these later stage flesh gun hand effects, the big prosthetics that were attached to James Woods' hand. James Woods uh, painted his real hand under there uh, like a, a dull blue one time because what they used was a cooled compressed air to make the the shooting effect as a goof so he 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 painted his hand blue and he would complain oh it's so cold under this thing with the the compressed air and finally they they removed it and and he told Cronenberg oh my god i've got i've got frostbite on my hand. <laughs> <laughs> so this is like the behind the scenes of this the the filming of this had to be great mm-hmm. this death Barry's death man so he falls to the ground, and as far as practical effects go, this this ranks up there in my top five easily. Uh, because what happens to his body? It's like the viscera exposed by the gunshot wounds starts tearing out and re- writhing around. And his, his, his head breaks open, and you know what looks like brains come out and also start writhing around in chunks. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is an appalling thing to see. <laughs> And uh, one can easily imagine why people are terrified to see that. Yeah, it's as though the bullet wounds put in very rapidly growing flesh or tumors that are splitting his body apart and forcing the old flesh out, which is his viscera and, and his skull, as you said. And what's great about this is his lav mic is still on. So while Max is leaving, you still hear his pain and his screaming and... and it's almost like the, the voice that Max has been hearing in his head this whole time. But Max actually picks up that mic and he, he, he issues the proclamation. Death to Videodrome, long live the new flesh. Followed by a mic drop, literally. Ah, uh, such a great quote. So Max, having accomplished everything, he leaves. And he goes off to an old abandoned, uh, condemned ship uh, at the harbor. Like a tugboat. And he opens it up, he, he pries the door open, and it looks like there have been some homeless people that have been squatting in here. There are random liquor bottles everywhere. Uh, there's a fire pit that was cold. He reaches down and feels the coals, and there was no fire in it. He finds an old, dejected, dirty mattress, and uh, he flips the sheet up. And he finds some cigarettes, but, ah, eh, they're empty. So he sits down. I mean, what, what else is there left for him? He's, he's done it all. He's really been through the ringer. And across from him, he sees a TV up here. And what's on the TV? Well, you have Nikki. I'm here to guide you, Max. I've learned a lot since I last saw you. I learned that death is not the end. You know, you've hurt Videodrome, but you have not destroyed them. And she explains to him that he has to now go through with a total transformation. And to become the new flesh, he must first kill the old flesh. Don't be afraid to let your body die. Come to me. Come to Nikki. Watch. I'll show you how. It's easy. And then the video on the, the television changes to uh, you know, a clip of Max standing in front of a fire in the hold of the tugboat. He puts the gun to his temple, proclaims, Long live the new flesh. Bang! And the television explodes, um, spewing, spewing flesh-like stuff out into the room in front of it. Uh, I think they were actually like pig guts that they got from Canada packing. 
there's some story behind that because they hadn't really written the ending to the movie. Uh, and so they weren't really prepared and they had to go and get these things at this packing house at three in the morning. And so Max looks at this and then he stands up uh, and a scene that exactly reenacts the apparent suicide. He puts the gun to his head. He proclaims, long live the new flesh. Bang! Cut to black immediately, followed by closing credits. And that's our movie, people. Beautiful ending to this movie. So, also, apparently, this was the third uh, ending that they filmed, and it, it was the one that they used. Uh, it was James Wood's idea mm-hmm. to, to use this ending. Uh, they also had filmed something, or they they intended to film something after this, but they simply like ran out of budget, as well as there were some filming constraints that showed almost like an astral technological version of uh, uh, our main characters in the the new flesh in the new video drum emerging to to uh to end to end the show i like it better this way i have to agree with you i think this is the right ending so faustus to ask you what what your feeling is or your interpretation is of this is such a simple question mm-hmm. we've gone through a lot on it i personally would say that my interpretation of it a bit um, because there's so many levels it could be taken at, is that this is Cronenberg taking the argument of censorship versus uh, non-censorship and, and just full permissiveness to both extremes and, and trying to show how that plays out in cinema. Then ending it the way that he did, because there's really no ending to it. Both, both arguments are a bit nonsensical. I think it's a challenging work. But I think it's a little bit more approachable than like a, a David Lynch who would do these similarly challenging works and then kind of intentionally stay nebulous because for, for David Lynch, art is more about the interpretation than the intention. In in summary for me, I would say with, with Videodrome, it requires multiple viewings and there are multiple interpretations and... Uh, I don't know. I guess you just have to to kill the old flesh and long live the new flesh. Could be. I mean, I guess this movie left me with a sense of really radical uh, epistemological skepticism because it's impossible to say, or at least it's impossible for me to say, what Nikki Brand really represents at the end. Yeah. All right. Is she the represent? Is she a uh, is she a resistance to Videodrome? Maybe. Is she actually being deployed by Videodrome to to terminate an asset that's gone off the rails? Maybe. Can't be said. And I think that perhaps Cronenberg wants to leave us unsettled with this kind of this kind of skepticism, uh, this kind of sense that we really can't know reality because it just ends up being layer upon layer. And that's a theme that they explore in it a little bit too, uh, is what is reality? Is reality just a summation of your perception? And what happens when something alters your perception? Does that alter reality? And it's it's broken fundamentally, uh, and it can't it can't really be fixed. So, but that's fine. It's a great movie all the same. Uh, I'm not. I come here for the questions and not for the answers so much. Yeah, God, I appreciate that, Faustus. Thank you so much. Sure. For joining me for this episode, like I said, God, I've been looking forward to this forever. At the end of every episode, I like to ask our guests the the question of clearly we've all seen Videodrome. Clearly, we've just walked through all of the beats of it. Of course you're going to see it if you haven't seen it. Nor see it again. Why wouldn't you? But, sir, if I could ask you for, I want some more. 
standing up there asking for a little bit more porridge mm-hmm. from the Videodrome uh, uh, coffers, what would you offer? I've got a couple of suggestions. Um, some of them are within are within the Cronenberg uh, canon. Of course, yeah. Uh, and probably the one that it reminds me of the most is a later Cronenberg film, I think it's 1999, called Existence, mm. uh, where you have, again, this sort of world of biologized technology or technologized biology uh, (laughs) of a video game world that characters get stuck in uh, and they have a very hard time figuring out what level of reality they're in and they're also fighting off you know essentially there's a theme of the people who are resisting the game resisting the company and the people who are playing it and of course if you like handguns and gristly objects that are weapons you'll really enjoy you'll really enjoy existence (laughs) so there's that Another kind of movie with a similar kind of theme that, you know, everything is, we're all puppets and we're all being programmed in some way, uh, might be, if you look at 1998, Alex Proyas's Dark City. Oh, God, I love Dark City. I really love Dark City, too. It's it's so stylish. Uh, I, okay, if you're going to watch Dark City, though, you have to cut the, I forgot the first three to five minutes of it, where they explained the twist of the fucking movie. You've got to find a cut of it where that is not included. Well, I mean, uh, there's the director's cut, right? Yes, yes. Uh, which I guess what you're talking about is essentially the narration that begins yes. the standard cut, the one that's being done by, um, what's the guy, the, the 24 guy? Um, Kiefer Sutherland. Kiefer Sutherland gives a narration at the front, which is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. But the director's cut of the movie doesn't have that. Uh, it just goes right into the conceit and you're lost in the nightmare universe right away. Yep. Uh, and so I would definitely, yeah, that's a, again, that's a movie where there's a great deal of, a great deal of ontological uncertainty. Yeah. Nothing is what it really seems to be. No human being is what they seem to be. The dead are walking around, uh, you know, being used. So again, that's a sort of sense of, um, you know, similar kind of thematics, but in a very different movie and from a, a director, I think, with very different kinds of sensibilities. So that would be something to recommend. Uh, and then, like, just for the theoretical side, I, I do, again, want to plug saying, you know, people should read Thomas Ligotti's uh, Conspiracy Against the Human Race uh, because I think he has a strong sense of, you know, how atmospherically powerful and how narratively powerful these ontological violations that we see in Cronenberg cinema can be, even if he doesn't discuss the cinema itself. So that would be my set of recommendations there. I'm absolutely going to pick that book up. Man, Dark City, I would not have made that connection, but you are absolutely right. That That's such a good pick. So for me, what I would pick, and it's two of my favorite movies, and I'll just go over them briefly because we've, we've been here for a bit, uh, would be Jacob's Ladder. Oh, terrific. Wonderful. Uh, 1990 horror film, Adrian Lin, yes. Again, we were kind of dealing with the fragmentation and, and hallucination of the psyche, right? Uh, as well as, as... As well as what I think is one of the most amazingly compelling horror montages. Oh, God. <laughs> in cinema, pretty much, right? Yeah, it's... So. The acting is phenomenal. It's, I mean, I don't know. I think it's a seminal horror movie, so most people have probably seen it. The other one I would say is probably uh, Darren Aronofsky's Pi Mm -hmm. uh, from 1998, psychological thriller. Again, we're dealing with the mind, right? It's the the slow erosion of sanity. Uh, It's kind of a, a, and, and paranoia. 
it's not so uh, uh, salacious, I would say, as something like uh, a Videodrome, but I think it might scratch the same edge. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Faustus. Where, if people want more of you, can they go, or what would you like to promote? Well, what do you know? This is the Grindman podcast. Uh, probably know me already. Of course. Um, I guess my primary internet presence, uh, aside from showing up on podcasts these days, is uh, that of a writer of adults-only webcomics, mm -hmm. uh, including most prominently a long-running series called The Tales of Gnosis College. Yes. Uh, which is successive cohorts of students at a fictional liberal arts institution find their own horniness interacting in curious ways with the fact that their alma mater is the locus of a lot of weird and mad science. I'd say they have a, a reasonable survival rate given the circumstances. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll provide a link. For, you know, there's a link to, you know, if you want, you can also get the most recent volume and all the volumes that have been published at the Internet Archive where they're downloadable in high resolution because this stuff is something I do for free. And you can also come to my website at eroticmadscience.com. You can come pay a visit. Uh, I have a current project of developing concept art and storyboards for a screenplay project I'm working on called Auto Icon. And you can follow me on Twitter at eroticmadsci, at E-R-O-I-T-C-M-A-D-S-C-I. That's me. All right, Faustus, thank you very much for joining us. This has been the Bloody Bits Horror Show, and this is how I end it. Bye.